What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Manifest Your Success podcast. In this episode, we are joined by Schuster. We talked about how current crypto companies have strayed away from the early fundamentals, the advantages and disadvantages of the office and asynchronous environments, and how to bring developers to the Web3 space. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Welcome to the show, Schuster. Oh, thank you very much for having me, folks. Yeah, of course. Um, so first off, we really just want to start with, since you're, since you're a big proponent, proponent and a builder in the Web3 space, what exactly attracted you to, to like Web3 or crypto, however you want to call it, when you first came across it? So I've always been a, a tinkerer with technology. That's always been the area I've done. I started my career off being non-technical. It was always something I wanted to do. And I was very fortunate enough to find the motivation and maybe even the courage to really suck at it for a while and play around. So I had a very non-traditional path, which meant that I got to study pretty much whatever I wanted to. You know, Nobody really forced me in a direction. So I spent lots of years studying different tech. I've studied things like data science, analytics, AI, um, crypto for a period, serverless technology, just anything that was really interesting. Um, but really, at the end of the day, what my passion really came down to wasn't really learning technology, but it was really helping others find good opportunities, particularly because I ended up becoming technical. I tend to focus on technical folks, but what really drives me is trying to find somebody who wants to create something great in their life and then really give them the tools, philosophies, and encouragement to be able to do so. The And you can do that in lots of ways. I do that for full stack developers who are just trying to enter their career. I do that for folks in business. I mean, I focus on, you know, founders who are trying to improve their organization. This can fall underneath a lot of domains. But what is unique is that Web3 is in what I call a talent crunch scenario where like, it, for example, if you guys wanted to enter a new career, you can go and do that. You can make that happen. It's just a matter of how much effort are you willing to put into it and what you want to do. And so for most industries, there's call it a two-year onboarding, for example, you know, where if you wanted to be a full stack developer, well, you got to understand JavaScript, you got to understand React. There's a bunch of backend stuff you need to learn, you need to interface. And that's, you know, boot camps tend to be about like a six-month program or whatever. Most people do some pre-studying for about six months or so. So call it a year to two years or so to do that. But that's for a normal industry. It's mature. It's been going on a while. And so you get into a place where it's like, okay, well, their average salaries, that's, you know, it's normal. But when you're in a talent crunch scenario, what's happening is the demand for whatever reason could be because there's a lot of, you know, new users, there's a lot of capital inflow. There's a bunch of startups moving into the space significantly increases, but the talent just can't keep up with it, right? You just don't have enough supply. And that's because it's hard to train talent. It's hard to get people, especially in a new technology, especially in a new paradigm, you can't get folks to learn that quickly. So what you ended up seeing is that in the Web3 space in particular, you saw that the number of years of experience that people were asking was going down. Salaries were going up significantly. And I don't mean just a little bit. I mean, like there were people making three quarters of a million dollars a year for engineering roles. As a reference, if you go to Amazon and you are their top engineer and you are being paid there, the most you can get paid is like 350. I think and that's for the top engineers, no management oversight or anything like that. In our, in this space, it's three quarters of a million, some a million dollars a year. So you see salaries go up. You see people trying to hire, say they don't need the folks anymore, right? Well, we needed Web3, but instead we'll just start splitting it off. And so it got bad enough where it's like, well, why the heck can't we find people? Why can't they go? And so eventually, as I started looking to the industry, I couldn't come up with a compelling reason for why you couldn't train 
experienced engineers today and train them in the Web3 spec and place them. And as I talked to organizations, there wasn't an answer. So I was fortunate enough to know, you know, my, my, my co-founder who's been longest running bootcamp director in the country has been doing this for close to a decade and he knew how to build pro bootcamp programs. So we came together, built a program and said, I don't know what the problem is, but I know this is something we have a good chance of solving. So that's when we started DevMint. That's why we started doing people in the Web3 space and really placing them. And now, I mean, after the first cohort, every one of our students is going into amazing opportunities. We're kicking off the next cohort now in uh, January and we're currently interviewing folks for it. I have no doubt that they're going to find just amazing opportunities in the space. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing some amazing things with DevMint. And like, it seems like everyone we talk to, like in the in the Web3 space, it's always like someone's like, well, even if someone is so like passionate about it and they want them like themselves to succeed, they're always thinking about like everyone else in the space too. And like thinking, okay, how can I help everyone else in this in the, the Web3 space? Because that'll also bring me up and my business and, and the whole industry up. And that's awesome that you're doing that. Yeah, and it's actually, it's something I've noticed with the most successful organizations that are scaling well, that are getting the most energy, they tend to focus first and foremost on community. Um, there was somebody I had on my podcast last week, um, uh, Lacey, she's the founder of Meta Intro, um, not even from Web3 originally, she was actually an HR professional, had a startup that did HR stuff, and now wanted to build basically call them, you know, um, wallet resumes is what she wanted to build. And people were very excited about this and she started building. Well, before she knew what she was, how she was going to market, she was just trying to figure out what her customers wanted. And so eventually she went online and just helped people. She was giving away tons of value. She kept talking with her customers over and over again till eventually she figured out that people were just trying to look for jobs. So she ended up starting the meta intro, you know, discord, which is free. It just, it's good branding for her, but she's not charging for, she's not paying it. And she has like 4,000 jobs posted there a month. now she has tons of people flowing in. She has tons of discussions. I mean, I'm on there basically every day talking to folks, but this is just like a free gift to the community to say, here, I'm helping you. I'm automating all these things so you can find jobs. And it's a great place for job seekers to go and find good information. And that's her marketing. And literally almost every single platform I talk to, any big organization either started that way or have that become a core part of what they offer in the future. This almost like community building aspect. And it's something we try to instill in folks at DevMint that this is something that really is the default that you're working on projects that you're not necessarily getting paid for. Right. Yeah. So I'm curious, like what, what made you so attracted to Web3? You mentioned like all your other interests, like just in technology in general, like AI, but like what, what made Web3 so different that you were like, okay, I really want to dive deep into this and really help people in this field compared to all the other emerging technologies um, that we see today. Well, I mean, it's right now, you know, other than the talent crunch aspect of it, where it's like, okay, this is a good opportunity for right now. It's not going to be true a few years from now. Wasn't true five years ago, but um, I'll compare it to like another technology that I'm really big into, which is like virtual reality, right? Which I'm really big on that. I'm absolutely certain at some point, if DevMint is even a little bit successful, that I'm going to take this model replicated for that industry next. It's not quite in a talent crunch scenario. Um. But it's, I guess it's because early on, I got the technology. I got why it was different. So like I'm attracted to technologies that I know would offer big future disruptive innovation. Um, I, I'm not sure if you guys have read um, Christensen's um, Innovator's Dilemma, right? And it was a big book in business and it has this scope. But basically he kind of defines technologies where it's like, why do 
big, you know, why do certain technologies seem to create new industries and why do certain technologies not do anything? And you think it's, is it the level of innovation? Is it the productivity increase? If it's this, that, you know, he looked at a bunch of things. And for the most part, like we have innovative technologies that don't do anything to create new industries. AI is a perfect example of this. When you take a look at the biggest players in the AI industry, they are the biggest players in the previous web web two industry, like Google, Amazon, um, Facebook, like all these organizations that were big before are still big now. Doesn't mean that they're not new companies coming in, but when you take a look at it, it's like, it's the same cast of characters versus with disruptive innovation. These are organizations that were new, basically new players. These are folks that have just never been around. I mean, if you were, if, if web three wasn't disruptive, then the biggest organizations to be dominating the space would be, you know, Bank of America, you know, Goldman Sachs, pretty much the big financial players. But you look at it, it's all new companies. It's Ethereum, it's Bitcoin, it's all these folks. The, the, the old players are having trouble breaking in. They try something and they don't succeed, getting outmatched by smaller folks. So I get fascinated with technologies like that as long as the value proposition is clear. You know, as long as there's something interesting, and at first it starts as almost like an intuition that something new is happening here. Took me years to get the language right. But for me, what I found is that there, the new thing that it does differently than anyone else is that it's really, it really has this core of what I call radical ownership over your assets. That's what's different. We talk about this almost from the side where we say we talk about decentralization, we talk about wallets, we talk about NFTs and all these cool things, but those are, you know, needed, right? They're necessary in order to run, especially when you come on decentralization. But what's different about Web3 is that you truly own your assets. Let's talk about what doesn't, you know, change here. It's not going to be faster than your current system. You know, like I said, Visa is going to be faster for as long as you live, basically, than anything that's decentralized, you know? It's just because centralized systems take less servers to run. So you can just go through it. So they can optimize in ways decentralized ones. So that's going to be one thing. It's not going to be cheaper, you know, to run, at least in the short term. Maybe one day it gets to that point where it ends up being so cheap that you want to use it. But for the most part, it's going to be more expensive, you know? It's not going to be as user-friendly because having a trusted third party Party means you can just trust them to do the right thing. It means you don't have as many steps. Decentralization is always going to be a bit more complicated. It'll get easier over time, but it's going to be more complicated. But the thing you don't have in today's system is you truly don't own your assets. Like your bank right now, if they decided that you're in violation of their of their, you know, their terms of service or rights, or the government says that you're a, you know, suspicious for something, you can get locked out of your account. You can't get that money out. So in fact, you it's not really that you own your asset, you and your bank owns that asset. Same thing with your Twitter account. You and Twitter both own your account and they can go and decide you no longer have access to these things. And this is true for every single centralized service you use. But Bitcoin is different. Ethereum is different. If you own your Bitcoin, if you own your Ethereum, they're yours. No one can take it away from you. Somebody has to literally steal it out of your wallet. They have to grab your private key or get you to sign a transaction to be able to take away from you. But Bitcoin network can't take it away. Miners can't take it away from you. The government can't take it away. No one can take it away from you. And with radical ownership called freedom to transact. If one day Visa decides that you are no longer credit worthy, you no longer have the freedom to transact. But if you have money, you can pay for a transaction. You can use Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, any network that's out there. They can't stop you from doing it. Now, there's a few problems that come from this because there's some people, well, we rather not have money, you know, have them have money. Like if you're a terrorist cell, we really don't want you transacting. 
right? So those are new problems that we're going to have to come up with ways to be able to resolve. But that core value proposition is something we can't replicate today. You can't do it underneath the current system. Once I got that, once I understood decentralization, I'm like, this is better. This is better for certain circumstances. And it just it's a matter of how much better is it for the world? Is it something that's only going to be in 0.1% of applications? 10% is it going to take over market? doesn't really matter. But it went after the biggest pool of money we have in the world, which is our monetary system, right? Which some of our markets are measured in quadrillions of dollars, especially when you talk about futures. So it's like the pie is so big. And this is so different that even if it captures a small percentage of the total you know, pool, there's value there. And the smart people are going toward it, so it's continuing to innovate. So it's one of those things where it was on the right side of innovation. It has a better value proposition. It's fun. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of fun to do these things. So for me, that's when I decided, yeah, I get this. I'm all into this. It's not when I decided to start a company, but that's when I realized, yeah, this is this is going to make a splash. It's just a matter of when. Yeah, you, you mentioned that it's kind of, it's attracting that, that smaller pool of talent right now. Well, I mean, what do you think would be like, like one big catalyst maybe? that could really bring like mainstream adoption or just onboard a significant more amount of users now than like, or in the future than currently are being onboarded now? It's always a hard question because you don't really, it's almost like trying to predict a second order effect, right? And what you would do. I mean, that's the thing. Facebook brought on millions and millions and millions of people to start using the internet daily, right? Where they weren't going from zero to one, but they were getting people to get glued to their computers that somebody could do that, which was not a thing back in the day. If you were in the nineties, you used the computer for maybe 15 minutes a day. You could go days without using it. But like the onset of like Facebook and email meant that people were on daily use. You're looking for something like that. So um, what I can say is that it's going to start with small-term adoption, right? It's going to start with what I'll call more the innovators use case. And then I think it's going to kind of break out from the side of that. Um, let's see, how how do I describe this? Like what I think the path forward is, where I don't know what the second order effect is, but I do know what the first order effect looks like. It's going to be some community getting really, really hunkered down on the technology and really deciding they want to make it better. Um, today, if I had to guess, it's probably gaming. Gaming is the one use case where I, I they really do understand it, it is tied to radical ownership, right? Because right now you don't really own your Steam account. You don't really own, you know, your games within it. You know, it has all those same problems with it. And it's not like gaming has a great reputation. Most people hate the guts of most, you know, gaming organizations and, and they have the right to do so. I mean, there's some of them are quite shitty. So people are looking for something new. There's this interesting mechanism you have where if you can take NFTs and tie them to an individual and then you can import them into these other services, all of a sudden you have decentralized identity associated with it, which means that all of a sudden people like streamers, for example, can have consistent avatars among different games and use them in the same way. So all of a sudden now you have a... You now have a, fo a medium to be able to allow people to go out and say this, you know, like right now I'm, I just bought a custom pudgy penguin because my avatar is the pudgy penguin and I'm going to be using it to do speed runs basically because I wanted to use my avatar to be able to do that. It'd be cool to be able to bring that into games and be able to say, this is mine, it's locked in there and Web3 can do that. I don't think that's going to be a big driver in the immediate future. But if you get enough people focused on this small group and they start innovating and game companies start coming out and actually building up, eventually I think you'll have a game that does actually break into the mainstream 
for whatever reason. I mean, that's almost what you think about it. It's almost like you're building up this ball of energy and we have some resistance up here. We don't know what that level of resistance looked like, but something so big happens down here that it just shoots off and it just breaks through for what, you know, for whatever reason today, I think it's gaming, but five years from now, it might be something else. We just have to wait and see, but that's, that's what I think is going to be the, the immediate push. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you see like all these players that are coming in and like the video game space is probably like one of the most like, like you can apply Web3 technology to the videos, the video game space. And everyone that's playing those video games is really not going to think about like the technology that's behind it, which is like something we were talking about in like our previous episode. Um, It's like, mm-hmm. it's so important, like not to just like take like blockchain and like all these node, like all these like really technical terms and just throw them at people's faces and be like, look, this is the better way. You kind of have to integrate it into a system. And I feel like video games is a perfect way to do that, where it's not like they're overloaded with all this technology that they don't even know what um, what it means. Yeah, it, it feels easier. And I mean, as long as some set of users get it, that they it's it's a real user adoption, right? I mean, investment is good, but it can only run the ships for so long before, you know, it has to pay off at some point. Even if you have a long runway, you need to have users at some point. As long as it's self-sustained and as long as they can keep churning out there, you can solve a lot of these UX issues you have in the way. Like wallets today are really, really shitty to use. They're not a fun experience. They're not great. MetaMask, you know, again, it's great for allowing us to be able to use, you know, wallets in, you know, the internet, the real world. But like, it's clear that we need to bridge some gap to get to the next level. And I'm not sure if MetaMask is going to be able to do that. Um, But I think that if you have a consistent user base that they're solving their problems, like for a specific niche and gaming is specific enough that it's say, okay, well, what do wallets need to do for these? How do we need to structure these things? And there's so many different what I call there's so many different settings and gears you can pull to make these useful, right? And so many different levels that I think if they just have the money to start innovating here and really solving problems, that they can become the catalyst and then say, well, okay, well, we figured out this for gaming. What if we then go reapply this to DeFi? What if we reapply this to, you know, finance? What if we reapply this to the system we thought would work five years ago? Doesn't, but now because we have this piece of innovation, we can resurrect this and see if this happens. That's what I think needs to happen. And I'm fortunately, I think we're seeing it, you know, and we're seeing it with like NFTs where it's like, everyone thought this was kind of a blip, but the truth is we still have new projects being created. We still have people really believing that people are still finding utility for it. I mean, one of my DevMin students, actually, I'm going to be having a conversation with her tomorrow about taking her final project she built, which is about giving NFTs a social life and then going and getting grant funding and actually going and building this project. And it's like, that would bring a lot of utility with not much else, not much more effort. And it makes it a lot more valuable. As long as we keep innovating on that cycle, we're going in the right direction. It just needs to not die. That's really the win state for Web3. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. Um, I think like backtracking a little bit, you mentioned Mm -hmm. how um, it's important for like like Web3 communities. It's important that they're like actively trying to help their users and that really attracts more users to them. What would you recommend for a user that's maybe looking for the right community? Like how do you find a community that's right for you? So it really, so first and foremost, it really does follow the interest hypothesis, you know, because we think, because people say passion, right, that you have to have passion for it, but passion's too strong of a word. You need to not actively hate the thing you're going into, but you need to be interested in it, right? Um, I mean, when you take a look at like, you know, people who are really, really successful in their fields, um, they didn't always have passion for it. They're passionate by the end, but that could be compounded by, you know, success and other things, but they're at the very least interested in it. So first and foremost, you need to know what you're interested in and you need to know what's giving you energy. 
That's really what's happening in a lot of these spaces. Most of the projects that take off is that people were just following the energy and they were being useful. So first off, it's understanding what your interests are and passions and understanding and being able to evaluate those things in real time, to be able to look at it and be smart or be aware enough to know and say, I'm keep getting pulled in this project, even though for some reason I think I shouldn't be, or I should be doing something more useful or whatever, getting pulled in that direction. That's the first thing. The second thing is to just know where to hunt, you know, and where to look for it. So like a lot of people get stuck because they're looking in the wrong places. Like they're on LinkedIn looking in web three. And that's the thing I talk on web, you know, about web three on LinkedIn all the time. You're starting to get a community. That's really not where people are. People are on discord and they're on Twitter. Those are your places. And then there's really good people to be following on that, you know, there where you got like, you know, the founders of these different tokens, some of the big investors in the space often promote lots of different people. So just understanding to look for those folks is a good place to start. And then for Disco, it's just finding one or two communities you can at least start with that act as hubs that then you can branch out and do other things. So for example, Meta Intro is my favorite just because it's a good community. Everyone's kind of looking for jobs, but you're constantly getting new projects, new ideas. And that's kind of a place where I said, oh, they're looking for a full stack developer. I'm a full stack developer, or they're looking for a community manager or whatever. Let me go find them now. And let me go find them. And that leads you to another Discord group and, you know, talking and communicating. Um, so if you understand what your interests are and what you do, and you actually find the groups, then the next day is to just thing to do is just hunker down and hang out. I mean, here, and, and I really do mean hang out. Like if people are like just out there looking for jobs or looking for money or trying to extract value, it, let me put it this way. People say it's off-putting and I don't think that's the right answer. I don't think it's off-putting. I think it's that it's such a, binary transactional way of talking that either I have a yes or a no. Like here, like for example, if I came to you guys and said to you, hey, I'm a full stack developer. Do you need a full stack developer? Well, to you, I mean, that's the thing. Some people might get offended by that, but most people will just go, oh, do I need a full stack developer? Yes or no? No, I don't need a full stack developer right now. Now, if you're in, that's just normal sales, right? And what you do, but that's also a volume game. And it's not really relational at that point. You have to ask a hundred people to get two or three who say, yeah, maybe let's go come and talk later. And they do that, but there really is no relationship at this point. I have a product. Do you need a full stack developer or not? And it gets dies. But if I approach it a different way and come in there and say, hey, I'm a full stack developer. I'm interested in what you're what you're doing, or I'd be interested in talking about what that is. You know, I kind of worked on this, or I'm interested in how to help your problem. Would you mind meeting for 10, 15 minutes? That's a much more powerful way of opening a discussion because instead of saying, Do I need a full stack developer? It's am I interested in talking with somebody who has full stack development skills? And the answer is, yeah, actually, I might do that because I don't know if I could hire you, but like there's something that's been on my mind that's really powerful. So what hanging out in these communities and literally doing the stupid stuff like posting memes, chatting, GM, and things like that kind of makes you a staple so that you can kind of scan and see things and talk with these folks and be like, oh, there's somebody I think I can help. Or, hey, there's somebody who's working on a cool project. Or I think this is interesting. Why don't I go talk to this group next and see what's out there? You kind of get comfortable in the community. You learn how they talk, what language they use, where you could potentially add value, which kind of leads then to the final thing, which is if you know what your interests are, if you're following the energy and going to different communities and you know where to hunt, if you hunker down in them, eventually you're going to find what problems you want to solve. All right. Everyone misses this because you're inside your own head. But the truth is, if you identify a problem nine times out of 10, it's going to seem obvious to you. And when it's obvious to you, you're going to think it's low value. 
you're going to think it doesn't provide much. But the truth is, if you see a problem and you identify it, that's a signal that one, that's a problem that you want to solve. People don't look for problems generally unless they're really impacted by it, right? Either they're super impacted and it's super annoying and they just need somebody to look at it, or two, they already have a solution in mind. They already know the path you do that. So what they should start doing is start taking these problems they're seeing and just writing them down and saying, these guys don't have a community lead. These guys don't have a wallet. They don't have this thing. These guys need somebody to go off and help like this. Like, for example, I'm a networker by nature and I love networking folks together. So I identify network problems or what I would say is that, hey, you need a developer. Here's five developers I know that could really help you. Would you be interested if I connected you guys? You know, I'd say something like that. But as you start noticing it, what you can start finding out is what's the pattern of the questions you're asking. Are you asking development questions? Are they community questions? Are they operational questions? And you may be surprised because you say, well, even though I don't feel like I'm an operations expert, all these things are related to how the Discord is managed and what they do. In which case you can write them down. That leads you almost like transitioning into you're going from an observer to a builder. We can go out and say, I can go and build a problem. I can go and fix this. And that's when you actually start becoming really valuable and contributing. So that's another part of the discussion. That's the, how do you switch from being passive to active in these groups here? But that's how you can be passive in a productive way, I would say. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's very insightful, really. I mean, I think that goes, like what you're touching on, like the networking, like asking people binary questions versus asking people, for conversation um instead of just mm -hmm. a yes or no question that's that right. goes such a long way because like even if you just like show your interest in someone else's life the chances are like even if you might not be looking for a job like right when you first meet them like if you just make a connection with them you, that that friendship and that bond you build just from like showing interest in the other person is going to go a lot further than you just saying oh do you have a job for me and they're just gonna right. be like no and then not think twice about it Right, right. It's moving, you're moving from a place where you're a point in time in that person's mind to being there longer term, right? Like somebody who has a sales question, you will literally be on their mind for that exact moment. So if they are somebody who needs a full stack developer, and if you're somebody who has the skills they're looking for, and if they're at a point where they can answer questions, then yes, you can go and do that. Then maybe that would work. But again, that's so narrow. You have to talk to a lot of people for that to work versus if you have a discussion, you have a follow-up where you're talking with them. If you made a big impression, you're going to be on their mind for maybe a few days, maybe even a few weeks. If you do a good enough job marketing yourself and saying, and they say, I'm not just a full stack developer, I'm a really good full stack developer or somebody you might want to work at, or I'm cheap or whatever that you kind of get logged into their brain. And in the future, if they see an opportunity, they might go, let me talk it to this person that I just talked to a month. So you end up owning more of their mind share for a longer period of time, which means you have a better chance of being successful successful. But if you sell, you lose all that in favor of getting a yes or no right now. Yeah, um, I'm curious. So I guess for someone who who's kind of looking at the space from the outside perspective, and they see, uh, like, they think it's they think it's a fad, maybe, like, for example, mm -hmm. Jack Dorsey, um, his his main argument that he's always constantly putting on Twitter is, uh, like a decentralized system or a decentralized application is always going to become centralized over time. And that like all the main benefit benefiters or, or benefactors of, of web three are just in the end venture capital firms, which are obviously not, not particularly decentralized. I guess like, would you have a response to, to that argument or any other argument against web three? So I guess I would say where it's that all decentralized systems eventually become centralized. I don't necessarily agree with that statement. I guess think of it as a binary. I, I do agree that over time it will get more centralized, 
But you have to see like, you know, what's that political quote? Don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. The alternative we have today is that we have totally and completely centralized systems and we have totally and completely centralized controls over those things. And there's lots of benefits to having that. There's certain things that we stack them side by side and say, yes, centralized is better for in this particular scope. But when you have something like, you know, the Ethereum network, right, where over time, the validators are going to get more centralized, right? Or the only people who will be able to compete will be big centralized firms. But the question is, is it going to go back all the way to fully centralized where they have controls? Well, probably not. We may get more, you know, it still may be centralized to some degree, but the question is, do you still have ownership over your assets in the same way? Like, can they stop you from transacting on the network? That's the end goal. And the answer is, unless something really radical happens, probably not. They're probably not going to be able to stop you. You're going to have to have controls and these other things, but that's not the right place to have that happen. Are they going to be able to take your funds away from the wallet? Probably not, right? So you can almost think of it as there's these core features that sit behind good Web3 you know, applications. And you have to say, even if it gets more centralized, it gets so centralized that I can't do these fundamental things. And so I don't think we're going to go on that path. But there is another point here where it's like, there's certain things we have to have in order to make the system work. Because right now we've kind of bundled, you know, a lot of services together because it's always been trusted third parties, right? You know, there. So we have like, we have your banking information, your data, your front end server, all controlled by the same organization, right? It's all controlled by Bank of America or whatever you do your finances. But the truth is, is that because they've been centralized, there's certain governmental controls we put in as well. There's certain regulatory controls we have to make sure it works because there's certain times where you're like, yeah, we don't want this person to go and, you know, spend money, right? They're a terrorist. We don't, we, we don't, we know that's bad or they're a pedophile or something else. Like there's a reason why we don't want the money. You know, we don't want them to have access to that. And this, it's really, really easy. We're still going to want something like that in a decentralized world. So what ends up happening is you have to reinvent the system where the centralization gets pushed off elsewhere. And this is the, this is where, you know, um, you know, I think exchanges come into play, right? Where you can't control the blockchain. You can't do that anymore. And you should have the freedom to be able to go and transact on these things. But if you go to the exchange level now, all of a sudden, a lot of the same controls exist there. And it may be appropriate controls happen at that level, right? Where it says, look, you can be free to transact on the blockchain, but if you're still dealing with US dollars, and we still have those concerns, you need to KYC in order to be able to go onto that chain. You need to still go and operate there. Like, um, you know, you go into Aave, for example. Aave is decentralized in the back end, but its front end is centralized. It complies with local laws to go there. So it's almost like things are moving up to that level. So I think at the end of the day, you're going to have some amalgamation where some parts of it are decentralized, some are still totally centralized. But in order to get this to work and to make it work well, you're going to have to be able to sum, you know, sum up all these different parts and make them sort of happy with a solution. It's just the question is, by the time we get to that solution, are we better off? Do we have a different offering than we had a few years ago? My hope is yes, that we're going to have that. You will have radical ownership. You will own your assets, even if there's some parts of it that are necessarily centralized or necessarily, you know, have some sort of regulation and control. That's my answer. But I'd love to, you know, any feedback or changes to this or additional questions if you have them. Yeah, yeah. I love I love what you said, like how the point where it's going to be like a balance between centralized centralization and decentralization. I mean, I mean, you see that that argument like in all fields, like in politics, like in, in sports and everything. It's just a matter like there's there's two sides and there's two viewpoints. It's just a matter of where we think 
the line should be um, right. for how we run society. Right, right. And, and and are we better off by the end? I mean, that's really ultimately the question. A lot of Web3 is still experimental. We think people will be better off. And again, this is because people in Web3 are zealots today. They kind of have to be to be this early into the space. Believe we'll be better off. But the truth is, most people are still wondering if that's true. And the same way we're wondering if we're true that we're better off if we have a free and open internet or we have internet access at all. It seems like a good thing, but there's a lot of issues and concerns there. So the question is, so ultimately the details are going to get really muddled, right? Where we're not going to be sure here in a lot, you know, again, you may have to sacrifice the, um, you know, the golden goose at some point, the metaphorical golden goose, because it's less decentralized or we don't get something that's there. But as long as people are better off, that they're more safe, more secure, they have all these things, even if it's not the ideal system, it's ultimately better. And that's what the rest of society is going to watch. That's before, you know, right now it's still the first 2.5% of users making these decisions on these things. The other 98% will come in if it ends up being true because they're more discerning. So we'll have to watch that over time. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, like just quick, like briefly, do you think there's any like fields that you think will never see like decentralization to like an extreme, like even like even just the smallest decentralization there is? Or do you think that everything is eventually going to get some form of decentralization in blockchain technology? Um, It's a hard question to say long term, because, again, that's not really let me put it this way. The question assumes that, you know, I'm not when I hear that question, I kind of assume you're asking that. Like, are there certain industries that'll be kind of removed from this change at some point and do that? And I think ultimately, if it's a useful technology, the answer is no, but it may take a very, very, very long time for it to really trickle down. I mean, that's the thing, like when they talked about like, you know, if you think of the market adoption curve, right, of everything from early innovators to the main market to laggards, right? You have like early computer folks had their first computer in the 80s. They're like my father-in-law who owned this, you know, compact, I believe it was a compact computer that was like 28 pounds and sat on the thing. He was an early adopter. The laggard was my, you know, you know, uh, my wife's grandmother, right, who didn't own a computer until like, you know, 2016, for example, right, to do that. And probably the first computer she used was the computer in her car, you know, <laughs> that was associated with it. So I would say like, if it's a useful technology, it will kind, it will necessarily have to impact everything. Um, but I'm, my guess would be that it's going to remain a niche technology for at least the next at least the next decade, just because it just because there are so many issues that have to be resolved underneath so many scaling issues, UX issues, um, you know, just useful products and things like that. So I think we're just going to keep finding pockets and pockets of folks until eventually, whatever that resistance is, whatever magical mix of these technologies and people is found before it actually breaks in. So in 50 years, it'll probably touch everything. In the short term, though, it's going to touch virtually nothing besides the markets that it's in, and it'll be big in the markets that it's in. Yeah, yeah. So, so you you briefly mentioned that, or about how you you co-founded Devment, which is the the Web three developer bootcamp you run. Could you briefly explain, um, maybe the difference between for someone that might not know, uh, the main differences between like a bootcamp and an online course? Like, what exactly sure. are the differences there, and what exactly do you guys do at Devment? Sure. So, and so this is something I talk about quite a lot because I think it's important because I, even though I founded a bootcamp, I was a self-taught developer who learned primarily through free or cheap online courses, right? I took Udacity courses, Udemy, Coursera, and I did all those things. 
And, and, you know, and I did, you know, and I only really came around to boot camps in the last couple of years when, you know, I met mentored folks, I mentored hundreds of boot camp students and really talked to them. And they told me, yeah, I know I could do this for free online, Brian, but I want to do this faster, right? And do that. So what do you get if you get an online course, right? So let's just start there. You get the good information, right? And you often have a pretty good instructor, people who write, you know, the great thing about, you know, courses online is that like, you can literally have like some of the best teachers in the world teach you things and distribute it to the world. Uh, my favorite course I ever took, or one of my favorite courses was a Python course taught by like one of the chief scientists at Google. And this course was absolutely amazing, right? So you get this format where you get videos and information and your data is going to be for the most part, pretty good. I would have said they're identical to what you would get into a boot camp, except the student's feedback is it's not identical. There is something different, but I'll get to that in a sec. But you'll take a course, you pay relatively little for it, right? Maybe at the most like a hundred bucks, but usually it's closer to 10 bucks there. So it's cheaper. It's a hundred percent self-paced where no one's going to really push you around on that. You can learn almost anything that you want and you have that. And so that's a pretty good program. The downside is because it's self-paced, you have to maintain that pacing for yourself. For most people, that's really hard. I was able to keep it up for years, but I found I'm in the minority of folks that go that are able to do this, that are able to sit down and say, I'm going to study this 10 hours a week for the next three months, and we're going to get through this program. Most people really struggle with that aspect. So there's a willpower thing that courses have there. The second thing is that you're often limited in scope on how the information is presented. And often you have to cobble together multiple perspectives in order to figure out what's going on. And that can waste a lot of time. So this is something I've noticed with courses is that if you go to a really good video course, it'll usually only be video. It's rare that you get video plus writing plus activities plus everything else. Some programs do, but usually they're single medium, which means that if you're struggling with the material or not sure exactly what it does, you need to go out to multiple sources to figure that out. But the problem is they're coming from a slightly different perspective, which tends to be a good thing, except that they'll omit things that the other one person said, they'll add things that are others. And then there's errors, just things that are either flat out wrong or described in the wrong way. So part of your struggle with self-learning is that you have to take two or three competing sources and figure out, well, which one of these is actually true, right? Which one of these are here? And so you, even though you're learning about the subject, you may not 100% get it. So it ends up being harder for somebody to really trust the source or they trust the material. They trust one source and find a really good teacher. But when you cobble it together with other stuff, you sometimes end up more confused and it ends up taking a lot of time. That's the final thing that's really about self-teaching. Because you don't have mentors, because no one there is holding your hand, you're just on your own. You're going to sit there and struggle. You're going to spend time learning these things. You may hit a wall that you just can't get over. That happens sometimes with these you know these languages, or you study the wrong thing because in an online course you're just you're you're creating your own curriculum. You go to a university and they have a major and they choose all your courses for you. Here, there's no major. There's just a course that teaches you one thing. So you have to decide. Well, what do I learn next? If I start with Python fundamentals, do I do the advanced course next? Next. Is that even useful or do I learn analytics or do I learn something else? You don't have a mentor around you. So no one's telling you, well, this is the next step that you should be doing. So that can often be a struggle for folks who are, you know, who want to learn there. So that's kind of self-teaching. It's cheaper, it's self-paced, but you don't have a lot of handholding and you have to, you know, you can sometimes be confused by material. So boot camps, and this is coming from the people I've done here. Number one benefit usually is that you tend to have a superior curriculum only because 
it tends to be a multimedia approach. Now I'm talking specifically about DevNet. Maybe other programs don't do this, but I know Parsity, our other bootcamp does this as well. And DevNet does this. And I didn't think this was a benefit, but students came back and told me this is better. This is it. And what I do is I do videos with each of my different things. I do writing with them. I have, you know, demo projects that are on there. I have activities all written by me. And then I come back and I talk with the students. They are getting the exact same information multiple different ways and have the source available to them so they can ask questions so that they can fully trust all the material they're getting. If I provide them a resource, they can provide the resource because they're under the umbrella of Schuster teaching the program. So what it allows them to do is allows them to go a little bit faster and allows them to see more of the details and they trust the material so that if I tell them, no, this is the way it is, they don't have to second guess it. That's the first thing. Second, you have you have a training regiment. You're told you're going to have to study 15 hours a week. You're going to have to get evals done at this particular time. You're going to have to study this material. Everything's laid out. And because it's laid out, all you have to do is just do the program. So you don't have to second guess yourself. You don't have to wonder, well, is this really useful for me? Is this really something that I should be doing? Is this something that I'm there? No, the program's all laid out to you. So you go from a place where this might've taken you months to get through to know I'm going to be done in eight weeks. I can kill myself and it's okay because I know I'm going to be done in eight weeks. So there's this big motivation behind it. And the other thing too, that comes with that is not only do you have a pacing, but you also have somebody there who's helping you. At our program, we actually have a mentor assigned to you. They're a senior web three engineer that we find there and they're working at these amazing organizations. So like when you're in the thick of it, right? When you're like three weeks in, your head's freaking spinning, you're not sure what to do. You have someone there to help you through. You have someone who's been there, who understands this stuff and can go and help you do this. You have somebody where you're in the middle of the night, not sure what to deal with. I dealt with this in my last cohort where like, One of my students had a really fun, exciting thing going on, but she had no clue how to handle it. So we got in a call at 8.30 at night and went and said, okay, tell me about your problem. I'm going to give you advice. I'm going to help you and do that. And I was able to go and help her to, you know, you know, help her with her problem. And it's like, you can never find that type of individual there, or you might be able to find it, but you'd have to get lucky, right? To do that. Lots of people are busy. You might be able to find that sort of mentorship, but for us, it's like you pay us so you can have that experience. So that's one of the benefits. And the downside is that, One, it's more stressful than self-teaching. Like if you self-teach, if like, if you give up, guess what? That's fine. You know, you, maybe you made the wrong path. Maybe you made the wrong decision. You can do that. If you're in a boot camp, it's like, you're kind of stuck on the rails, right? To do that. You can stop, but that's a, it's a painful experience. And even if you go on, you're going to be working quite hard. I mean, we teach short intensive boot camps, So you are working 15 hours a week. And one of my students did a 40 hour week job plus 10 to 15 hours in another commitment. She actually joined a web three organization while working for our boot camp, So she already kind of accomplished the goal plus at least 15 hours a week for this course. So she was working a seven hour load and she's like, how am I going to handle this? And I'm like, all right, one day at a time, let's go through this. So it is stressful. You have to get used to that. It's going to be more expensive, right? Just flat out. Like you can, you're going to be able to get, you know, the same education outside if you're willing to spend two years on it on your own and you have the right program here, but it's going to cost you maybe 500 bucks, right? Versus our boot camp is going to be $10,000, you know, at, you know, at least, right? You know, we're thinking about the pricing. It's going to be 10,000. It's going to go over eight weeks, but you're going to be in the space after that eight weeks, right? So the question is, is it worth, you know, 10 grand to you to save 18 months of time, you know, for what you do? That's the, you know, that's the other thing. And like, and also like, you know, and I guess I've noticed with, you know, this with other programs, like you have to really know what you want to do for this to be worth it. That's the thing. You can't tinker in a boot camp, right? You kind of have to know, is it a full, you know, am I going to be a full stack developer or not? 
if you're not sure, it's not a great commitment. You know, it's only sure if you're willing to go barrel, you know, if you're ready to execute and go full bore towards that new direction. So those are my reasons and why I say here, either is particularly fine. I know people who have done both and they've been successful. I'm I'm an example of one with self-teaching there. I've also met boot campers who were very happy with it. I met boot campers who are unhappy with their experience. It just depends on the individual. Right. Yeah. It sounds like you're just giving people like a, like if, if you know someone that's like, okay, I literally want to go full force into, into development. Like this, this sounds like the perfect course. Like, cause if you, if you're ready to commit and you're, you're ready to put the time and the money forth, then like, this is the perfect course for you. It seems like. Right. I mean, if, I mean, we really tried to do a program. We did it for experienced developers that want a basically a premium experience is the way that we talk about this. You have a mentor who's going to work you through this. We're going to teach you the latest and greatest. We're going to network you with the best individuals we know in this space. You're going to walk away with a big network of really, really big people, people that I'm even, you know, shocked that, you know, that we know and do that, but it's like, we know just by running this course, we know these things. So if you want a highly network experience, if you want to quickly move into the space and you're passionate about it, this is a good program, you know, for you to be able to go through that. But there are lots of folks in our extended network who aren't ready for that. They're not sure about the technology or they're tinkering or they're not technical enough for what we're doing. And that's perfectly fine too. You can go and learn as well. Um, the biggest thing is though, is like, just don't sit on your hands, right? Even if you decide I'm not interested in web three, that's great. Go learn something else. Then go spend your time. Don't, fucking argue with me about whatever you're doing. Go learn AI, go learn VR. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Just be useful to the world. That's ultimately what I care about. Just be useful, you know, be somebody who's actually useful for everyone else out there. And if you can do that, I'm happy. And if I get to help you along the way, I'm even happier, but if it isn't, that's fine. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that, that kind of is, is sort of unique about you guys is you kind of prioritize uh, like ex experienced web two developers, right. And then you onboard them to to like how to be a developer in web three, whereas they're like other potent, like potentially other boot camps, it's just kind of like open to anyone who wants to become a developer. But if like, if you think about it, the best way for, to, to really bring on the, the best and most um, like the most experienced developers is to bring someone who already has years of experience um, in other languages or other industries, and then just teach them, Hey, this is how you can apply those skills. And here are some new ones to where you can work in this web three industry. And I think that's so valuable. Right. And that's that's why we structured DevMint the way it is, because we knew, I mean, at least in Web3 today, everything we heard from our partners and people we work with, where it's like, it's just not a place junior developers really thrive today. Agile really doesn't have a way to solve this problem. It doesn't really have an answer to this. So what Web3 is doing today is one, they're smaller organizations. Most core development teams are still underneath the 100 person threshold, right? And that's 120 is about the max you can get an organization before you get to scale where you really need management to deal with this. If you're less than 100 people in the same place working on a problem, you can you can manage this complexity. Beyond that, you can't scale. So one, they're small. And two, because they're all kind of scrappy doers, they kind of make do. They know it's shitty, but you're working with people who can take punches that understand that are more entrepreneurial in nature, that are more adventurous. So you can go and deal with it. So they know how to deal with other builders, other entrepreneurs, other innovators. What they don't know how to do is how to take somebody who is a brand new junior developer who doesn't know shit about working in an office and translate them to this environment. I've worked with teams that have tried to hire these folks and they just end up sitting at home doing nothing. And not because they don't want to work, but it's because no one's trained them. No one has to do it. And more importantly, they don't know how to train them on this new philosophy. They don't know how to train them on this. They can't hand them a book. There is no book. It doesn't exist today. This is a problem that's only existed in the last five years. So 
that's another reason why I've said two years is really the minimum, because unless you have two years of experience, you don't know how to work in a normal office environment, which, which means you don't have any way to translate. And I have not seen any company be able to explain, this is our process for doing asynchronous work. These are the expectations that you have in this new environment. I mean, the, the only organization that I know of today, um, other than the ones that were listed in um, uh, Reinventing Organizations, phenomenal book, but it's very organizational behavior. It's about TO organizations. The only other company that I know has really taken this head on is an organization called um, Gumroad by Sahil Lavignia. He actually wrote an article called No, no Meetings, No Deadlines, No Full-Time Employees, which basically shows their philosophy on what they had to give up to be able to work asynchronous. They had to have no standard meetings. They work all through Slack and Notion. They have no deadlines, which means they can't commit to a deadline, you know, there. I mean, they sometimes they can, but for the most part, they don't really have any pushes. The product is ready when they're ready. And that goes so counter to everything else that it's basically revolutionary for operations there. We So organizations are having trouble even wrapping their mind around that this might be their reality now. Forget trying to take a junior developer who knows nothing, <laughs> that you're paying $100,000 a year to do this. Instead, we'll just deal with seniors. So at some point, that's a problem I want to figure out how to solve. I think I'm in a good place to be able to go and do that. But it's going to take a lot of innovation to get us around that because we just most people haven't recognized it as a problem. Yeah, so yeah. There's I, your organizational behavior for the day. <laughs> that, that was quite that was quite the load. Um, I'm curious, like, especially with COVID and everything. I mean, it just kind of moved everyone to this like out of office like mindset and like they're working from home. There's not really that collaboration. So, like, what would you say to someone that hasn't really experienced that office like environment? And how what what are some things that they could do to be successful in an office environment compared to um doing like work from home? So I think first and foremost, um, getting your mental game right is probably a good first step there and what you would do. So going to an office by yourself doesn't make any damn sense, right? Into you. So I'm assuming that like, you know, at IBM, for example, by the time I came back, literally no one was in the office any day that I was there. So it's like, well, you're, work, you might, you're just working from home at an office at that point because none of the benefits you get there. So the first thing I would do is get your mental game right to basically... Try it out as an experiment. So many people have such a shitty attitude when trying to do that change where it's like, ah, they're fucking making me go into the office or doing this. Where it's like, oh, hold on. Like, look, you may not like it, right? Or do this. You may do this, but there may be benefits you're not getting. If you can just be open-minded to this, stop making it about your fucking boss. Who cares about your boss? Make it about you. You're learning how to deal with people. There might be benefits there. This is the benefit to your own career. Who cares why you're going in there? Because if you're pissed off at your boss, that's just not going to be a non-star. So getting your mentality, being open to them, being willing, like, okay, let's actually go do this. Let's try going into the office. Let's go see doing this. Let's see if there's benefits to this. That's the first thing. Second thing is to really like understand the, the politics of working inside of the office. And you know, even if you work at a small company, big company, there's a certain way that people speak and talk when they're in this office. And this really struggles because for people who have not had that upbringing, you can see this like in their eyes where it's like, it just, it just gnaws at them, right? I, I had the privilege of dealing with a, you know, having a um, a mentee in uh, Europe, actually, basically, where it's like he came from a rough upbringing. He turned his life around, got through boot camp, was working there, and he went to the office and, like, boy, like he was ready to rip somebody's head off, <laughs> right? He came from an upbringing where it's like somebody, because and he had a real situation where it's like his boss, like, was literally like did some really shitty thing to him, right? Or appeared did some really shitty thing to him. And where he came from, what do you do when somebody does really shitty to you? 
Well, you beat the crap out of them, right? To do that, right? Versus he's in an environment, and again, justified being the crap out of them, right? That's just how they handle things where you know where he came from. And again, that's true, you know, in a lot of places. But you're in an office, they have a different set of expectations to do that. So the problem is if they can't handle it the way they know, they go to thinking that the system is rigged against them, which is also not true. It's not that the system is rigged against them, it's that it has a completely different set of rules. So for somebody who's never been into that environment, finding a trusted friend or mentor or somebody who really does understand that world and can really bring them into it to figure out what's going on, right? To understand, here's how HR plays into this. Here's how this role, here's what your boss is really looking for is really helpful. So actually being open to work in the office. Second, accepting that it's might it's going to have different roles than you expect and finding a mentor or somebody to help you work through that is a good thing. And then just really just starting to participate and be willing to make mistakes that you're not going to do certain things right. That's really the openness to experiment, you know, experience is really important. So many folks fall into the trap of just making a decision that it's a bad thing, right? Or they have a really crappy attitude and all the learning goes out. Truth is you can learn something from the experience. You can figure out how the politics are played. You can figure out how networking is done. There's all these benefits you have, but if you're not willing to go out and make a, you know, try to make a good effort at it and really make mistakes along the way and be okay that you made mistakes. Because some people in the office act like total, like, wimps about this stuff where they act like small things are really big deals. You have to learn to deal with that as well. But if you learn how to speak that language, you open up a whole new set of opportunities for yourself to be saying, I can deal with politics. So that's what I would recommend. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I feel like the corporate environment, I mean, I don't, I don't have too much on hand experience personally, so I can't really, I'm only 20. Um, I've, I spent like uh, a few weeks, like around the corporate environment and it's completely different. And the way mm-hmm. that you interact with people is a whole different vibe than like what you would do if you're sending someone an email and like, there's all these other like communication, like, um, yeah. like body, body language and stuff like that. That's a huge role. And like, um, when you're communicating with someone in an office versus sending them an email. And if you don't know how to like use your, your communication, right, then you're going to rub someone the wrong way. And it might end up you out of a job or out of a career. Right, right. You have to, it's about reading those cues and languages and understanding how to deal with it. Right. Because then you have to deal with like really hard scenarios, right? Like, um, like last year, you know, a couple of years ago, my wife was working for a, um, a major accounting firm, what's called, and uh, she was pregnant. Um, her boss knew she was pregnant, and all of a sudden, hey, turns out she was put on a PIP, um, a performance improvement plan for low performance. She had never gotten a bad note in her life. She has never had anything bad happen. She had nothing. She had nothing been been nothing but a top performer. Um, but her boss said she was a low performer. That's a way that she was going to get out. So we knew what was happening. But for me to be able to argue with that, first thing I do, I was on the phone with an HR person and a lawyer by the end of the day to try to figure out what the thing to do. And we had some very, very structured things we needed to do to basically send an email at this point, record discussion, send this off, do this to make this happen. By the end of the week, the cast was, you know, the, the die was cast where we had some issue come up and we knew what was, you know, we knew how to deal with this, but the truth is it's because we knew how to deal with the HR machine. We knew how to deal with this piece of shit manager that they were dealing with, excuse my French, to kind of go and, you know, and, and, and manage the situation. And the truth is that if we didn't have that background, we may, she may have gotten laid off and they would have gotten away with it, even though she was deemed discriminated on for the basis of her pregnancy, you know, and like there. And it's like, and then that's what's, that's what's so hard to explain to some of these folks where it's like, yes, the rule says you shouldn't discriminate based on race. You shouldn't discriminate on these things, but people do it anyway. And they just don't handle it. It's not street justice. They're not going to handle it. You know, there, as a matter of fact, some of those folks, the person who did this is still working at the company and still has a career there. It seems totally unfair, 
but that's the game you had to play. All we knew is this is the worst case. This is what we're trying to prevent. This is what we're going after. I don't care if that person deserves a punch in the face. That's not the point. The point is let's protect ourselves and make sure we're out there. And if you don't have that or somebody talking to you about that, it's really hard to get that right. It's really hard to get that right. Yeah. So, so I guess as, as we wrap up here, um, Mm. If there's any any handoffs, maybe maybe books that you've read, videos that you've watched, podcasts that you listen to that you think would be really beneficial to to the audience, um, could you drop those here? And then also where the audience can reach you or your work. Sure, sure. So I am on Twitter is probably the easiest place that I can get to and reach out after me afterwards. I'll send you all these links. I'm at at uh, um, at underscore Schuster Dev. Basically, that's at underscore Schuster Dev. Um, I have a picture of a pudgy penguin, basically, as an NFT. So it's a, it's a, you know, you should be able to find me there. And I'm talking about, you know, DevMint there. So you should find that. Um, I host a, um, a Twitter space once a week now. I do that at Fridays at 10 o'clock, um, where I'm basically talking about all things Web3. So I pick a topic that's interesting and just kind of riff with the audience. Did my first one last week, had a blast, had a bunch of people up on the stage. It was a lot of fun there. So that's one place you can find me. If you're interested in DevMint school, that's devmint.xyz, devmint.xyz. Um, you can go, you can see the, the curriculum, you can see the syllabus, you can see there we have a newsletter that we publish where the Build Learn Web3 podcast comes out. So we have a whole bunch of free, you know, free resources out there, really for people, for technical folks that are just interested in getting involved, interested in understanding what the space is about. I write about all that. Um, honestly, though, if you're like really interested in Web3 and you decide I want to do this, um, it's cliche at this point, but it really is the best. It's reading the Bitcoin white paper. If you want to get involved, don't start with reading about NFTs. Don't read other people's white papers because they're often like so many levels from removed from what the foundation is that you get lost very quickly. If you read the white paper and read Satoshi's early reading, you figure out in a world where web Bitcoin doesn't exist, what was his argument for Bitcoin? That is the foundation. That is the thing. That is the thing that created the first aha moments. All of the great writing that came afterwards started because somebody read that and went, I get this now. So do that. So I would say there, if you had to read something, read the Bitcoin white paper and synthesize it. Because the really important thing is that that is somebody who had no clue what they were about to create, trying to convince people who didn't care why they should care. And it worked. That's why it's an important paper. So that's what I recommend. Yeah, that's awesome. I think I think that's a big flaw. Like as we like mature, even like in our society, like even if we look back like at the founding, like how we founded our country and like what it's all based on. I mean, at least in America, for anyone listening that's not. But like mm-hmm. if the the more you fade away from like the foundation of why something is started, in this case, Bitcoin, and like the more you fade away from that, the more flawed your system's gonna be. And there's a reason that that Bitcoin was launched and we, sh- we should try our best to to align ourselves with Bitcoin values and what the white paper spoke about throughout this whole time. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, and that's the thing that I try to teach more than anything, where it's like, you got to get down to the foundations of why this stuff matters. Um, Because unfortunately, if you just kind of look at the result of it without the problem it started in, you don't understand why these technologies matter. And this happens all the time, right? You get into a job and you're dealing with the technology where it's like, I have no clue why we need this Nginx proxy. I have no clue why it's here, but it's here. So I need to learn it. So it's not fun to learn. It's not fun to fix. It breaks, but you're not sure why. So you don't learn that. And Web3 is kind of the same way where most people come in and be like, it's, it's an NFT, just a shitty piece of art that is more expensive, whatever. And they don't get it. People say, oh, it's decentralized. It's it's that. And it's like, most people don't get where it's like, why it matters. You have to start with the foundation and the problem it was fixing, which is what the Bitcoin wiper does, where you'd be like, oh, that's the foundation. It's a shift from centralized to decentralized from 
you know, third party ownership to radical ownership where I own everything. And then from there, once you get that, you can build up everything to realize, oh, this is why NFT matters. So yeah, study the foundations and study the problems that they were talked about in. And you you get a much stronger understanding of why these things matter. You can still disagree, but at least you understand what they were trying to do, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so st- uh, speaking of uh, like starting small and building up something, we we typically end our our podcast with a final question, and that is, sure. what is one goal that you have in your career or personal life, and what actions are you taking to achieve that goal? Oh, that's a wonderful question, guys. So, okay, how about this? I'll do a fun one here because I do this because I got a lot of serious business goals. I want to build Devman to be a big thing, but no, the one thing that I'm doing is that I'm I'm picking up a hobby and I have just picked up speed running as a hobby right to do that it's something that i've watched videos of this for years um i ended up uh, recently playing through resident evil 8 with my wife actually we play like a video now that we have like four kids it happens almost never but we've somehow found the time to go and build this i really liked it and started playing it and started playing started getting fast at it so i decided to do resident evil 8 speed running so my goal is to like be the top score on this one category here never done it before to make that happen and basically the thing i've learned there is just basically dumb consistency with anything, right? It's all about reps. So the thing that you see from the top speed runners that do these things is that they're online every day doing this stuff. So my goal on what I did here to say, I wanted to be a top speed runner for this game that doesn't have a ton of runners. I mean, some have like thousands, this one has hundreds, is to do two runs a day, basically, to go and do this, to always have these things timed and to basically do it at two. So like on days where I'm running, basically, I'll take a break from lunch, go and play around, get done, do one at night, basically, and then go to bed and do two a day. So that's really what I've learned. That's just about reps. And I don't know, I think my time now is like one. It's a game that takes eight hours to finish. I'm at one hour, 30 minutes and some odd change. So I got like four minutes to shave off the time, but that's going to be a lot of reps to get that down. Yeah. So (laughs) So that's my fun thing. That's awesome, dude. So when you first said speed running, I was thinking like running actually, but so, so speed running in a video game, is that just like trying to beat the game as fast as you can or Oh man. Oh man. You guys are now it is, it's a really niche hobby, but it's a fun one. Basically. Right. It's basically, you know, somebody defines a goal basically to say you have to beat the game with glitches or without glitches to go through and do that. So like, um, like if you, if you view summoning salt on YouTube, the guy has a phenomenal channel where he goes through the history of these things. It's been going on for decades. It turns out, but right. It's basically a goal to say, how fast do you get, you know, can you get through the game, right? How fast can you go through and do that? So like Mario world, basically there, and there's a, um, I don't know if it's any percent. Yeah. I think it's any percent. Like they were able to beat the first Mario game now in four minutes and 50 some odd seconds. Right. And it's just getting as fast as you can, but some of them are just fascinating fascinating there's a there's a a a, a, a yearly thing called um games done quick or summer games done quick and there's just like where people were basically playing i mean literally any game the resident evil games you know modern warfare whatever there's speed runners for every single type game but like some of them like most of them are pretty okay but some of them are just like incredible like my favorite one of all time is a guy who did we boxing for you know we boxing for the um you know um I can't can't remember what game it was, but it basically like, you know, punch out, punch out for the Wii. But he did it blindfolded. He did the entire <laughs> yeah. flame blindfold, even that. And literally, like he get there was one fight in the middle where he's like, he wasn't sure if he could beat it. And he beat it. And it's just the crowd went absolutely nuts. And you look at it, it's like, I have no clue how this guy was able to do this. And I was able to listen to cues. It's quite amazing. So anyway, it's a dumb hobby, 
it pretty much brings nothing to my business. It does nothing for my life. It's not going to bring me any, you know, interesting, but it's just something I enjoy doing where it's like, I know I could use a fun hobby and this is as good as any. So that's what I do. So even in that mentality, I'd be like, okay, how do I do this? Well, how do I make this work? You know? Yeah, so that's I, why what's interesting to me. Yeah, I guess I could see that applying like to other areas in your life. Like you're pushing yourself to a mental limit and physical limit. If you think about it, if you're playing Wii boxing and like, I feel oh, like yeah. that same practices are going to apply to your, to your other um, oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You change domains and you can use the same things you can get, you know, and you can get better at them. And that's the thing. You're always the same person at the end of the day. So anything you do on one side tends to bleed over. I mean, that's the thing that I found. I've never had an area of my life where, you know, like one goal was going really well and the others were really poorly. Either all of them are kind of improving all at the same time, or they're all getting worse. Right. And like one goal going super well can kind of pull the others up. So it's good to be well-rounded in that sense. And this is, this is the way I've decided to try to be well-rounded. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here, man. We really appreciate your time. Awesome folks. Thank you so much for your time.